0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy
1: Now! I'm overwhelmed, overwhelmed with joy and happiness
0: and delight
1: for the women in this country.
0: Overwhelmed with joy, those are the words of Eugene Carroll after a New York jury found Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming her. Despite the jury's decision, Trump mocked Carol during a primetime CNN town hall last night. The Republican crowd applauded and laughed at his remarks. We'll speak to Jane Manning, a former sex crimes prosecutor who now directs the Women's Equal Justice Project. Then, Republican Congressmember George Santos has been arrested on 13 felonies, including wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and fraudulently collecting unemployment benefits for building a web of lies as he ran for Congress. Santos is refusing to resign.
2: I'm going to fight my battle. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to fight the witch hunt.
0: I'm going to take care of clearing my name, and I look forward to doing that. And we remember the Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla. She was shot dead a year ago today by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank. No one's been held accountable for her death. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli airstrikes continue to rattle the Gaza Strip, where at least 27 Palestinians, including children, have been killed since the air raids started Tuesday. Scores of others have been injured and dozens of homes have been destroyed or heavily damaged. The U.N. and other groups have condemned the killing of civilians. They're calling for an immediate ceasefire. This is 19-year-old Mohammed Syed, whose fiancé was killed in the
3: an airstrike Tuesday. These are our clothes that she bought for the wedding. She wanted to buy more stuff, but we lost everything due to the occupation. We lost our happiness because of the occupation. We lost our happiness and our lives together due to the occupation. I lost my happiness and joy due to the occupation.
0: Danya Das was 19. Her 16-year-old sister, Iman, was also killed in the attack, which had targeted the building next to theirs, which Israel said was home to a senior Islamic Jihad leader. An Israeli airstrike on the southern city of Khan Yunus killed the commander of Islamic Jihad's rocket unit earlier today. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a primetime TV address Wednesday its latest attack on Gaza was not over.
4: We tell the terrorists and whoever sends them, we see you everywhere. You cannot hide. We will choose the time and place to attack you. We will choose and not you, not just in response, but in calm and quiet times. The choice is ours.
0: Here in the United States, Palestinian-American Congress member Rashida Tlaib on Wednesday introduced a resolution to recognize the Nakba when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forcibly expelled from their homes during the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. The resolution reads, quote, the Nakba is not only an historical event, but also an ongoing process characterized by Israel's separate and unequal laws and policies towards Palestinians in including the destruction of Palestinian homes, the construction and expansion of illegal settlements, and Israel's confinement of Palestinians to ever-shrinking areas of land, she said. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy attempted to quash a planned event by Talib commemorating the Nakba by preventing it from going ahead in the U.S. Capitol. Instead, Congressmember Talib hosted the event in a packed Senate committee room filled with Palestinian rights supporters in Pakistan. Arrested former Prime Minister Imran Khan is expected to soon appear before the Supreme Court as unrest grows across Pakistan. At least eight people have been killed in protests. The Khan's party says the death toll is closer to 50. Authorities have detained at least three leaders of Khan's Pakistan, Tariqa Insaf party, and the government has deployed soldiers to quell demonstrations across Pakistan. This is a protester in Peshawar.
4: We had come out to protest, but the police fired tear gas shells at us. Then they fired shots at us. This is very cruel. We have come out because they have been cruel to Imran Khan. Also, they have arrested him. Until he is released, our protests will continue.
0: Imran Khan has already faced two corruption charges in court this week and is being detained for eight days. Over 100 cases have been filed against him since he was ousted one year ago in a parliamentary vote of no confidence. Khan had described the move as a form of U.S.-backed regime change, but later placed the blame on the Pakistani military leadership, saying he wishes to mend ties with the U.S. This all comes as Pakistanis grapple with the worst economic crisis in decades, marked by record high inflation. In Tunisia, two worshippers and three security officers were killed Wednesday when a naval guardsman opened fire outside Africa's oldest synagogue on the island of Jerba. Four security guards and four visitors were also injured before the assailant was shot dead. The assault targeted an annual pilgrimage of Jewish visitors to the 2,500-year-old Griba Synagogue. Japan is planning to open a NATO liaison office in Tokyo, the first in Asia. Japan's ambassador to the U.S., Koji Tomita, said Tuesday the move comes as NATO and Japan are working on strengthening their partnership as tensions with Russia and China continue to rise. The office would reportedly open next year. New York Republican member George Santos surrendered to federal authorities Wednesday at a courthouse in Long Island, where he pleaded not guilty to 13 counts of wire fraud, money laundering, lying on federal disclosure forms, stealing unemployment benefits. Santos spoke to reporters after his release on half a million dollar bond.
2: I'm going to fight my battle. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to fight the witch. And I'm going to take care of clearing my name. And I look forward to doing that.
0: After his successful 2022 campaign for New York's third congressional district, Santos was exposed as a serial liar who fabricated his educational background, employment history and religion. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has refused to demand Santos resign, saying he'll await the outcome of the trial. Republican leaders see Santos' vote as crucial in the House, where the party holds a slim four-vote majority. We'll have more on George Santos' indictment later in the broadcast. California Senator Dianne Feinstein returned to Capitol Hill Wednesday for the first time since announcing a diagnosis of shingles in February. The 89-year-old California Democrat said in a statement she would resume her duties with a lighter schedule. Feinstein has missed 91 floor votes in the Senate and her absence stalled the advance of President Biden's judicial nominees after Republicans denied Democrats' request to temporarily replace Feinstein and the Senate Judiciary Committee. Last year, the San Francisco Chronicle published a story raising concerns about Feinstein's mental faculties. And some of her colleagues, including California Congressmember Ro Khanna and New York Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have called on Feinstein to retire immediately, saying she's unable to fulfill her duties. In Texas, a U.S. Army sergeant who was convicted of murdering a Black Lives Matter protester in 2020 has been sentenced to 25 years in prison. Daniel Perry was just blocks from the Texas state capitol when he fatally shot 28-year-old Air Force veteran Garrett Foster, a white man. Following Wednesday's sentencing, Foster's mother, Sheila Foster, called for an end to hateful comments directed against her family.
1: That is the worst thing that we've ever had to experience, and it has been the thing that has given us the most grief and heartache through this whole thing. We're seeing the lack of humanity in this society where people can reach out to a
0: grieving family and make fun of their deceased loved one. Ahead of the murder, Daniel Perry posted on social media he planned to shoot looters and share dozens of shockingly racist images and memes. He also wrote, quote, It's official. I'm a racist because I do not agree with people acting like animals at the zoo, unquote. Last month, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott pledged to pardon Daniel Perry, citing Texas Stanier ground law. Abbott's pledge came after now fired Fox News host Tucker Carlson defended Daniel Perry. Former President Donald Trump said Wednesday he intends to pardon many of the January 6 insurrectionists who've been convicted on felony charges, including seditious conspiracy, if reelected. Trump made the remarks during a primetime event in New Hampshire hosted by CNN, where he called January 6, 2021, a beautiful day.
5: They're proud. They were there with love in their heart. That was an unbelievable and it was a beautiful day.
0: During the 70-minute broadcast, Trump also falsely claimed the 2020 election was rigged, defended his family separation policy at the U.S. southern border, called on schools to harden their defenses against mass shooters, and said he'd push to arm teachers and endorsed a U.S. default on its debt, saying, quote, we might as well do it now. Trump called CNN host Caitlin Collins a nasty person. She questioned him about his mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, his resort, and Trump mocked writer E. Jean Carroll after a jury on Tuesday found he sexually abused and defamed her in the 1990s by branding her a liar. CNN's decision to host Trump drew condemnation. Former D.C. police officer Michael Fanon, who was beaten and tased by the right-wing mob who attacked the Capitol on January 6th, wrote in Rolling Stone magazine, quote, Donald Trump tried to end American democracy. Why is CNN throwing him a rehabilitation party? A panel of advisors has voted unanimously to recommend the Food and Drug Administration make a widely used birth control pill available across the United States without a prescription. The oral contraceptive sold by Perigo under the brand name Opil is a synthetic version of the hormone progesterone, which is highly effective at preventing pregnancy. The FDA is expected to make a final decision on the pill this summer. Meanwhile, a three-judge panel of the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals is set to hear arguments next week in a case challenging the FDA's approval of the abortion pill mifepristone more than 20 years ago. All three judges are Republican appointees hostile to abortion rights. Two of the judges were nominated by President Trump. An unprecedented heat wave fueled by the climate crisis is shattering temperature records across Southeast Asia. Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Vietnam and parts of China have all broken temperature records this month, with some areas topping 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Elsewhere, Spain reported its hottest and driest April on record. Wildfires are raging across Siberia and in Russia's Ural Mountains, and tens of thousands of people have been forced to evacuate their homes in Alberta, Canada, as wildfires have claimed an unprecedented unprecedented one million acres this year. This comes as a new study finds the Peterman Glacier in northwest Greenland is melting far faster than climate models predicted, indicating global sea levels may rise quicker than previously believed. The Biden administration's agreed to conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin's plan to expedite the approval of fossil fuel projects, which activists have dubbed Manchin's dirty deal. The White House said the endorsement of Manchin's plan was in exchange for speeding up the construction of new transmission lines for renewable energy, which are needed to meet Biden's climate goals. This comes even as Manchin vowed Wednesday to oppose all of Biden's nominees for the Environmental Protection Agency, unless his administration rescinds a plan to limit power plant emissions. And here in New York City, activists with the newly formed group Climate Defiance rallied near a a $25,000-a-plate campaign fundraising event attended by Biden. They demanded Biden halt the controversial Willow Project in Alaska and take other actions that would help combat the climate crisis. Human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger and actor Jane Fonda joined the action Wednesday.
1: This is the time for civil disobedience, right? We've been polite, we've marched, we've protested, we've written, we've made speeches. We have to up the ante now. To save the planet and our future, the window on that is closing rapidly, and we have to do something about it, and we have to be very brave.
0: And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the war and peace report. I'm Amy Goodman with Democracy Now!'s
6: Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy. And welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking more at how
0: a New York jury has found former President Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming the writer Eugene Carroll at the Bergdorf Goodman department store in the 1990s. After just three hours of deliberations, the jury ordered Trump to pay Carroll five million dollars. On Wednesday, E. Jean Carroll talked about the ruling during an interview on the Today Show on NBC.
1: I'm overwhelmed, overwhelmed with joy and happiness and delight for the women in this country. Here is the astonishing thing about this win yesterday. Of all the cases that this man faces all the legal quagmires it was one well let's think of all the prosecutors all the special counsel all the investigators and what happened yesterday is one five foot two little blonde wily female attorney and one seventy79 year old five year old five foot nine. Five, five foot nine 79
0: year old <laughs> advice columnist
1: beat Donald Trump. In
0: court. During the trial, Donald Trump's defense team did not call any witnesses. Trump rejected his chance to testify. But on Wednesday night in a televised town hall on CNN, Trump mocked Eugene Carroll, while the Republican audience laughed and applauded his remarks.
1: Are President, you ready? Can I, can I, and I can swear I ask
5: on my because... children, which I never do, I have no idea who this woman This is a fake story made-up story. We had a horrible Clinton-appointed judge. He was horrible. He allowed her to put everything in. He allowed us to put nothing in. Mr. President, this is a you're recounting
7: your version story. of events here right now. And I swear, and I've never done that, and I
5: swear to you. I have no idea who the hell—she's a whack job.
0: After CNN's town hall ended, Democratic Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez appeared on MSNBC and blasted Trump's remarks and CNN's handling of the town hall. I know you said earlier that you will not comment on the platforming of um, such atrocious disinformation, but I would. I think it was a profoundly irresponsible decision. I don't think that it would— I would be doing my job if I did not say that. Um, And what we saw tonight was a series of extremely irresponsible decisions that put a sexual abuse victim at risk that put that person at risk in front of a national audience, and I could not have disagreed with it more. It was shameful. We're joined now by Jane Manning, a former sex crimes prosecutor, now the director of the Women's Equal Justice Project, which serves survivors of sexual assault. Uh, Jane, it's great to have you with us. Um, If you can both respond to what Donald Trump keeps on repeating about E. Jean Carroll, even after being found guilty by, uh, unanimously by a jury of six men and three women, uh, found uh, liable for sexually abusing and defaming Eugene Carroll, and respond to the verdict itself and the significance of it.
7: Let's start with the verdict itself, because I think the headline of this story is that the verdict was a resounding victory for Eugene Carroll. Some people have had questions about why the jury didn't find him liable for rape. I think that goes to some ambiguities in Eugene's own testimony about, um, w- whether she was sure whether she was fully penetrated or not. Sometimes the jury will hear that and say, okay, well, if she's not sure, we're not sure. But the sexual abuse that she described was unequivocal and the jury delivered a verdict that was unequivocal in less than three hours, um, which shows that there was broad consensus among the jurors that they thoroughly believed E. Jean Carroll. And so to come back within three hours, delivering a verdict of liability for sex abuse and a $5 million damages award shows that this jury believed E. Jean, that they believed what happened to her was a serious offense and a serious violation of her rights. And they decided to award damages accordingly. So her um, message of celebration yesterday morning is absolutely right. This was a, a victory for her, and it was a victory for all of the survivors who were rooting for her as she um, approached her trial.
0: You know, I asked you what Trump, um, about Trump's comments, you know, uh, defaming her once again. Can yes. you talk about the judge's warning about him doing this? And also, we said despite the verdict, but maybe it was because of the verdict that he did that.
7: Well, let's point out that Donald Trump is uh, very free with his comments and his insults outside of a courtroom, but he didn't have the guts to walk into the courtroom, take an oath, testify under penalty of perjury, subject himself to cross-examination. Those are all the things that E. Jean Carroll was willing to do. And those are the things that under our rule of law, transform a person's account from mere talk. To testimony. Donald Trump wasn't willing to go into court and back up his words with actual sworn testimony. Eugene Carroll was. I think it was, um, really a wrong move for CNN to give Donald Trump, a man who tried to overthrow American democracy, um, a, a big piece of prime time, um, airtime to spout whatever he wanted to spout. Um, at the end of the day, though, The jury verdict is in and uh, Donald Trump can say what he wants, but he was afraid to face down this woman in court. And I think we shouldn't let the public forget that.
6: Jane, could you explain the origins of the New York uh, Adult Survivors Act uh, under which this uh, case was heard, where the jury was adjudicating on the basis of that act? If you could explain its origins and also why, even though what Trump is accused of and what he's been found liable for are criminal offenses, uh, this was actually a civil case.
7: It was a civil case, and in fact, um the conduct that Donald Trump was found liable for could have been prosecuted in in a criminal court, but for the fact that the statute of limitations had expired now, New York has since abolished its statute of limitations on rape, but that only applies to rape cases um from two thousand and one forward. It doesn't go back earlier than that, and that's why egene Carroll's case was never um um a candidate for criminal prosecution. So she sued Donald Trump civilly under a cause of action called sexual battery. And that is what the jury found him liable for, uh, for conduct that meets the legal description of the crime of sexual abuse. Um, uh, But, but it was a civil verdict for sexual battery that he was found uh, responsible for. You asked about the adult survivors act. So the adult survivors act is a law that was passed last year Um, and it opens a one year window of opportunity from November of 2022 to November of this year, 2023, for survivors of sexual assault to bring a civil lawsuit against the perpetrator of the sexual assault, even if the normal civil statute of limitations had expired. So normally the statute of limitations for a civil lawsuit for sexual battery in New York State is only a year. And as we know, that's just not a realistic view of what happens for some survivors in terms of coming to terms with sexual abuse and coming forward to report it. And so there was a group of sexual assault survivors who um, took up this issue in Albany, and they were a group of very specific women, Drew Dixon, Marissa Hochstetter, Evelyn Yang, Allison Turcos, and they lobbied the Albany legislature to create this one-year window of opportunity under which survivors can bring a civil lawsuit, even if they would otherwise have been time-barred.
6: And could you explain the federal statute that was part of the Violence Against Women Act that allowed evidence of similar crimes to be uh, admissible in sex crime cases and how that worked, if at all, uh, in the case of Eugene Carroll?
7: Absolutely, because what we saw in e. Jean Carroll's trial was that two other women, Jessica Leeds and Natasha Stoinoff, were permitted to testify about their experiences of being sexually assaulted by Donald Trump in much the same way that Eugene Carroll described this testimony was admissible because of a federal rule four fifteen that was enacted as part of the Violence Against Women Act in the early 1990s. And it provides that in federal court, civil or criminal trials, evidence of similar crimes is admissible in a sex crime trial. That law was passed because Congress, as part of the Violence Against Women Act, recognized that survivors of sexual assault face added hurdles beyond those faced by other survivors, um, to seeking justice in court, and that there is a strong societal interest in being able to hold sexual predators accountable. It's important to note, however, that the vast majority of sex crime cases, civil or criminal, are tried in state courts where this law is not in effect. And so we often have the perverse situation where a survivor takes the witness stand, and if she has, let's say, a shoplifting conviction, she can be cross-examined about that, but if a defendant has seven prior sex crime convictions, that is concealed from the jury. And that happens on the theory that well, jurors will be prejudiced. Uh, they'll be run away with by their emotions, and they won't be able to look at the actual case that's on trial. What we know now from experience is that is not true. And Donald Trump's case is one example of that. The jury wasn't afraid to look at the verdict sheet, think back to Eugene Carroll's testimony and say, well, we're not convinced of this allegation because she expressed some ambiguity about it, but she was clear about this count, this count, and this count, and we thoroughly believe her. So we are going to find Donald Trump liable for those things. And so what they showed and what other juries have shown is that they're not afraid to parse through the charges, parse through the evidence, and base their verdict on what they believe about the crime at hand. So it is it is time for states to go back and re-examine that rule of law that says jurors cannot know if there is a pattern to a defendant's behavior. Jurors have shown that they can handle it. The Me Too movement has shown us why that kind of evidence is so relevant. It's time for activists in all the states that don't permit this kind of testimony to go to our legislatures and say, let's take another look at this. Let's change the laws to give survivors a better shot at justice, like the shot that E. Jean Carroll had.
6: So, Jay Manning, we want to go to E. Jean Carroll in her own words, uh, uh, speaking Wednesday following the verdict.
1: It is a moment which, before yesterday, uh there was a concept of the perfect victim perfect the perfect victim always screams always reports to the police always makes note when it happened and then her life is supposed the perfect victim's life is supposed to fold up and she's never sort of supposed to be happy again and yesterday we demolished that old concept it is gone it is gone and i'm <laughs> i'm overwhelmed with happiness for the women
6: of the country it's really not about me so much it's about every woman so jane manning you work with survivors of sexual violence and you said after the verdict came that your cell phone was buzzing with messages of relief and joy from survivors so if you could talk about what you think the broader impact uh, of this uh, verdict will be on other survivors
7: I think every time there's a high profile rape case, it gives us an opportunity to have important conversations about what real rape looks like, because there are a lot of myths about who the perfect victim is and what a real rape is and what it is not. And E. Jean Carroll did a brilliant job of summarizing that in her comments. Oh, the the idea that a real victim always screams, always goes straight to the police, never acts happy again for the rest of her life. Um, E. Jean Carroll didn't fit that script and yet she was so forthcoming about who she is and why she did the things that she did, I think some of the things that made her a quote-unquote imperfect victim are actually some of the things that made her a very credible witness. It gives us all a chance as a culture to learn more about what we should and should not expect the facts of a rape case to look like. At the same time, it also gives us a chance to acknowledge that for most survivors, the system is still not working the way it worked for E. Jean Carroll. Civil lawsuits are prohibitively expensive for most survivors. Rape shield laws are very unevenly enforced in civil litigation around the country. Um, and in criminal justice, we still have police departments that can find overwhelming resources to arrest people peaceful protesters or women selling food on the subway, they can find the resources for that, but they are still not coming up with the resources to do proper investigations of sex crimes or to train detectives to do trauma-informed interviews. Right here in New York City, the NYPD allocates less than 1% of its personnel to all cases of sex crimes and all child abuse cases in all of New York City. That's exactly upside down from where we should be. And so we still have a lot more work to do so that other survivors can achieve justice.
0: So I wanted to ask you two questions, Jane Manning. Uh, One is, you know, Trump keeps attacking this as a Democratic hit job on him. Um, But of course, we don't even know who the jurors are. Uh, and I want to ask you about the fact that they were anonymous. In fact, it's something that Takapina, his lawyer, said he's going to appeal on their anonymity, anonymous also to the lawyers. And two— uh, he talks about Reed Hoffman, the uh, founder of LinkedIn, um, uh, being one of the funders of this uh, lawsuit that E. Jean Carroll brought. I mean, there is no question Roberta Kaplan is an astonishing lawyer. Um, but who can afford this kind of defense? And that goes to people all over the country who might want to bring charges. And even in this case, when E. Jean Carroll wins, if you can say that, let's not forget she was attacked decades ago. But even when she does, I mean, it's not only the mocking of Trump that Trump does at this town hall. What's more frightening is the cheers from the crowd in the audience.
7: That's a lot to unpack. Amy, Amy it's horrifying. And what it says to me is, once again, we have to recognize the close connection between the health of women's rights and the health of our democracy the two go hand in hand when democracy is undermined women's rights are undermined Just just listen to the way Donald Trump talks about his worldview uh, of, of a world where if you're a powerful man you can do what you want to women and you can get away with it remember the way he rubbed that in Robbie Kaplan's face during the deposition. it's been that way for a million years he said and then he paused and then he said, Unfortunately or fortunately, he wants a world where there's no democratic accountability and specifically there's no legal accountability for men who perpetrate sexual assault. Um, Amy, you're absolutely right that our civil justice system is out of reach for most survivors I would love to see more of our wonderful law firms devoting pro bono resources to representing survivors. I personally have seen some law firms do that kind of work, and they've made life-changing differences for survivors, but there will never be enough pro bono representation to address all of the rape cases that exist. Moreover, there are defendants that are just not appropriate for civil relief. We need a functioning criminal justice system that is prioritizing rape cases over arresting nonviolent people for crimes of poverty and addiction. So we, we really need to redouble our efforts to make both civil and criminal justice systems more reflective of the true values of our community and the true priorities of, of women and all survivors in our community. Um, I, look, I, I was chilled. By what I heard in the CNN town hall last night. It was not a representative sample of the American public. It was a hand-picked audience of Republican Trump supporters. At the same time, I think it is essential that we realize that we have a long way to go before we have a, a legal system that truly reflects the values of Americans. Because I Because I do believe that That there is broad consensus among Americans that perpetrators of sexual assault should be held accountable, are not yet consistently being held accountable. And there's a lot we can do to change that. And the anonymous jury, we just have 30 seconds. The anonymous jury is not going to be a grounds for a successful appeal. There's no right that a defendant has to a non-anonymous jury. And the judge made a great record as to why Donald Trump's own history of attacking and endangering people with his inflammatory rhetoric was the reason why he chose to protect the jurors' identities in this case.
0: Jane Manning, we want to thank you for being with us. Former sex crimes prosecutor, director of the Women's Equal Justice Project, which serves survivors of sexual assault. You can also go to democracynow.org to see our interview yesterday with Jessica Leeds, one of the two witnesses who testified on behalf of E. Jean Carroll, who describes being sexually assaulted by Donald Trump. Next up, we get an update on scandal-plagued Republican member George Santos, arrested Wednesday on 13 felony charges, still refusing to resign. Back in 30 seconds.
5: Looking back down the road from a little ways out I never had a fear and I never had a doubt If it had a lick of sense, I'd have figured that out pretty fast But I wasn't any smarter than the average kid Somebody might have noticed, but I never did I never saw the future fading right into the past
0: If It Don't Bleed by James McMurtry, the Texas musician, has been performing in a dress at his Tennessee concerts in protest of the state's anti-drag law. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik. The scandal-plague New York Republican Congress member George Santos pleaded not guilty to 13 federal charges at a courthouse in Long Island a Wednesday. He faces seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, two counts of lying on federal disclosure forms, and one count of fraudulently collecting unemployment benefits. Santos spoke to reporters after he was released on a $500,000 bond just hours after turning himself in to the central Islip Court. I'm
2: going to fight the witch and I'm going to take care of clearing my name and I look forward to doing that. Why would you apply for unemployment benefits when you had a job making $120,000 a year? Rachel, this is part of my defense. This is inaccurate information and I will get to clear my name on this during the pandemic. It wasn't very clear. I don't understand where the government's getting their information, but I will present but my facts.
3: Say so you got over $20,000 in unemployment right.
2: benefits, sir. How is that acceptable. Ma'am, like I said, my employment was changed during the time. I don't understand where the government's coming from. I'll present my defense <laughs> to that.
0: After a successful 2022 campaign for Congress. Santos, if that's his name, was exposed as a serial liar who fabricated his educational background, employment history and religion. About a dozen House and Senate Republicans have called for Santos to resign, including a number of Republicans. But that doesn't include Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who said he'll wait to see if Santos is convicted. McCarthy spoke to CNN's Manu Raju Wednesday.
3: Santos said today he's running for re election. Are you gonna
2: support him? No, I'm not gonna support him. You're not? Okay. So you guys you work to try to defeat him in the primary? I mean, Santos has a lot going on. But I, think, I think he has some other things to focus on his life than running. So you don't plan to support Santos for re-election? That's what
0: I said. Republican leaders see Santos's vote as crucial in the House, where the party holds a slim four-vote majority. If convicted, Santos could face up to 20 years in prison. Another criminal case is looming against Santos in Brazil, where he faces a hearing today on an allegation of check fraud. Meanwhile, in another case involving Santos, crew. That Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, filed a complaint Wednesday with the Federal Election Commission that says Santos's currently listed campaign treasurer may not exist. Crew President Noah Bookbinder said, No one can seem to find Andrew Olson. If he doesn't exist, it would be an extreme abuse of our campaign finance system, one the FEC should not permit. For more on all this, we're joined by Mother Jones reporter Noah Lennard, who is in the courtroom in Central Islip as Santos pleaded not guilty. Um, his latest piece is headlined "Santos Indictment Leaves Many Lies, Mysteries, and Scandals Unaddressed." Earlier this year, um, Noah and reporter David Corn did a story headline: "We tried to call the top donors to George Santos's 2020 campaign; many don't seem to exist." Noah Lenard, welcome to Democracy Now. Just lay out both what happened in court yesterday. You were there on Long Island, um, and then what you have found in your investigations of this lying Long Island Congress member.
8: Yeah, thank you for having me on. So yes, I was in the courtroom yesterday. Um, Santos was arraigned. He had U.S. marshals behind him. He uh, pleaded not guilty to all the counts with his lawyer. Um, Joe Murray there, and then there was $500,000 bond posted, and then they went to some other details. He surrendered his passports, for example. He's no longer allowed to travel outside of Long Island, New York, or D.C., without the government's approval prior to. And then it was a very quick hearing. He left the courtroom, and there was just a a huge media scrum, um, dozens, scores of reporters swarming him, um, and then the clips that you played earlier in the show um, but what we found um, earlier in the year was that, yeah, you know, I mean, like so much of his story, so many of the things he's done are, are blatantly, you know, not what normal candidates do. Many of his donors don't seem to exist. And what's amazing about this indictment is they've managed—the the federal prosecutors have a very strong 13-count indictment, but it still doesn't even address many of the biggest mysteries about him. Um, I spoke with Santos's lawyer, Joe Murray, uh, after the hearing, and I asked him about the possibility of a follow-up indictment with additional charges. And he said that sometimes does happen. I wouldn't be surprised to see that here, because what you don't see in this indictment is a lot of the things related to his campaign finance practices. We still don't know where he got the more than $700,000 he loaned his campaign, you know, where that money came from. Did he even loan that money to his campaign? So there are a lot of things we still don't know um, that we'll be finding out potentially in future indictments.
6: And, Noah, what about the fact that this bond, $500,000, uh, where did that come from?
8: So, it's a—my um, understanding it's an unsecured bond. He also has three people, um, shorters, um, who are, you know, endorsing it. Um, so, he's, you know, he's out now. Um, but, yes, he's basically very limited. He can only go between New York and D.C. He's, and he's voluntarily agreed to those conditions for now.
0: So, I want to ask you about what he means in the House, um, that Kevin McCarthy still has his arms basically wrapped around him. He needs him. Yes, the Republicans have a four-vote majority, but when it came down to the debt ceiling vote, he was the deciding vote, one vote. That was Representative George Santos, or whoever he is. Um, Can you talk about his significance in the House and what the House could do? I mean, the local conservative Republican uh, Long Island Congress members, not to mention the majority of Republicans in his district, have called for him to resign.
8: Yeah, I think there's kind of a nice arrangement that's working out right now, where, you know, basically you have particularly downstate New York City area and Long Island Republicans, you know, very strongly calling for him to resign. This is a huge embarrassment for them. They know they're running for re-election next year, and they do not want at all to be associated with George Santos. On the other side, higher up in leadership, McCarthy and other, you know, Republicans in House leadership know that they need his vote. They can't afford to not have it. So, it, it seems like there's kind of an, an arrangement, formally or not, that's been worked out where the downstate Republicans get to say very mean things about Santos and say that he should step down, but at the same time, knowing it's really not going to go anywhere, at least for now, at least until potentially a conviction or a plea deal in this case.
6: And, Noel, could you talk about um, Nancy Marks, uh, George Santos's uh, campaign treasurer, and how she was complicit in what he's, uh, his various forms of criminal behavior— Yes, I think there's a very important part of the story. She's not in the indictment,
8: um, which is a pretty obvious thing that is missing. And obviously, that's intentional. What's unclear is whether that's because she's talking to federal prosecutors right now or because she's not talking. It could be either. But the key part of it here is that she's the person, other than Santos, who almost certainly knows the most about what was going on with his campaign finance practices. For example, she's the one who signed off on a large series of 199 99 expenses, which is one cent below the federal threshold needed to keep receipts. Um, so, you know, she's the person signing off on that. She also had her 19- and 22-year-old children give legal maximum donations of $5,800 to Santos. Many of her relatives did the same. There's no evidence they'd ever given political contributions before Santos's campaign. I spoke to at least one Santos relative who was reported as giving $5,800, and they said that they did not give that donation. So, these are things— that Marx would have been aware of, and Marx also would have been aware of, or should have been aware of, the fact that she was reporting maximum donations in the 2020 campaign from people who didn't—who almost certainly don't exist. I mean, for example, they were living at addresses in New York City that don't exist. They had names that nobody in the United States has that name. But in some cases, the name was very similar to some of Santos's relatives, with just one or two letters changed. So, you know, there's a ton of suspicious things that she is involved in, and it's possible that she's cooperating and is going to come to a plea deal and then give even—which will lead to even more indictments for Santos. Or if she doesn't, she may be facing an indictment of her own. Uh,
0: If you could very quickly, Noah, talk about what he's charged with these cases. um, But then also— does his announcement that he's running for reelection uh, is in some way means he can get more money for himself, since part of this is the fraud of raising money for his election, but then he uses it for himself?
8: Yeah, so uh, on the first part, there are basically three parts of this indictment. The first is the most serious. It basically represents that Santos was telling people that he it was a 501 c 4 nonprofit supporting his campaign. He was going to some of his biggest donors saying, hey, give money to this group. They did. It turned out it was actually a company that he controlled based out of Florida. And then he siphoned the money out of the company and bought luxury goods, paid off his car, et cetera. So that's a pretty simple one. The other is that he applied for unemployment insurance during the pandemic while he was working at what the SEC has called a Ponzi scheme. Um, so he got about $25,000 of unemployment insurance. And then the third part is that he lied on two—allegedly lied on two congressional disclosure forms misstating his income and assets. So, those, you know, those are the main um, things that are in, in the indictment there.
0: And, Crew, what they've brought forward yesterday um, about the non-existence um, of the—of um, what? His campaign treasurer?
8: Yeah, so he, ele- he says, you know, Nancy Marks basically was no—you know, removed herself or stepped down as treasurer, and now you have Andrew this person, Andrew Olson, uh, is the treasurer. Uh, separately from Crewe and in the past, I've tried to find Andrew Olson. If, if Andrew Olson is listening, I would love to speak with him. Uh, I have not found any evidence of who this Andrew Olson might be or if it is a real person, and Crewe has not as well. I mean, Andrew Olson is not a treasurer for any other Republican campaigns or committees or anything in politics that—I mean, I mean there's—and he's listed at an address that is a Santos family address in the past. So there is, just like so many parts of the Santos story, many questions about who Andrew, Andrew Olson is, if that is his real name.
0: We have 10 seconds. Which comes first, uh, Election Day, when he's re- running, or trial or settlement?
8: I'd say trial or settlement, and I think George Santos is really hoping to retain the life rights so that he can sell this. He mentioned a book yesterday.
0: Noah Leonard, reporter at Mother Jones, will link to your pieces, including your latest. Santos indictment leaves many lies, mysteries, and scandals unaddressed. Coming up, we remember the Palestinian American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, shot dead one year ago today by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank. Stay with us. We Spend All Eternity Looking for Us by Maya Hershey. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik. It was one year ago today when an Israeli soldier fatally shot the Palestinian-American journalist Shereen Abu Akhle in the head as she was reporting on an Israeli military raid just outside the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. She was shot while wearing a blue helmet and blue flak jacket, clearly emblazoned with the word press. Shireen Abu Akla was one of the most prominent TV journalists in the Arab world. She'd worked for Al Jazeera for a quarter of a century. She was also a U.S. citizen. A year after her death, no one's been held accountable despite detailed testimony from eyewitnesses to the shooting. This is an excerpt from the Al Jazeera documentary, The Killing of Shireen Abu Akla, where a correspondent, Shroof Abdelkadus, spoke to journalists who were there at the time of her death. It begins with her producer, Ali Asamudi, who was also shot.
4: When we made sure that there were no confrontations,
3: we started walking slowly, with slow steps. And about 25 seconds later, here they are walking with Shada and Mujahid up the street, all in their press jackets, just past the spot where Salim had a view of the military. <laughs> Suddenly, a round of bullets was fired. I shouted,
4: Shireen, they're shooting at us. We have to get out of here. Just as I was saying, we have to get out of here, my shoulder exploded. I shouted, Shireen, I was shot, where I said, Shireen, they shot me.
5: After the first bullet, I was able to jump behind a short wall to take shelter. Shireen and Shata reached me to jump and get out of the place, but they couldn't. They started firing at us.
2: I immediately pressed record. I saw Ali was wounded. He walked away. Shireen was behind the tree. I could still see her hiding behind the tree.
4: The last words that Shireen said was, Ali has been wounded. Ali has been wounded. I mean, these ears, every day, all the time, Shireen's voice is repeating in my ears.
2: I stepped forward again, and they started saying Shireen, Shireen, but they shot at
0: us again. I have a blank spot in my mind.
1: I don't remember how I got behind the tree.
0: I got behind the tree and turned around to see if Shireen could come to where I was. At that point, I saw Shireen falling to the ground. I didn't understand that she had been gravely wounded.
2: I stepped forward and saw Shireen on the ground. I'm holding the camera, I bend down. I want to walk, to walk towards Shireen. تتحركيش وجات تتحركيش وك شرين شرين
0: The whole time I wanted to shake her, to touch her, to move her. But I was also filled with fear because the tree was what was protecting us. And if I moved her, maybe she would be wounded again. I remember when I saw the blood on the ground, when the blood started coming out, that's when I realized that she had taken a bullet to the head. And I started shouting, it's her head, her head. That was the Palestinian journalist Shafa Hanaysha in an excerpt from the documentary *The Killing of Shireen Abu Akla* from Al Jazeera English's Current Affairs program *Fault Lines*. The documentary just won a George Polk Award for foreign television reporting. We're joined now by Sharif Abdokadous, the correspondent on the documentary. Um, Sharif, congratulations on the George Polk Award, but it's hard to talk about congratulations. Today, this painful one-year anniversary of the death of Shireen Abu Akhle, uh, just outside the Janine refugee camp, uh, can you talk about, at this point, one year later— What kind of investigation is being done? The U.S. government promised Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, uh, Shireen's family, this investigation would be done. Um, Can you talk about what's happening now?
3: Well, I think the most important thing to understand is that one year later, after Shireen's killing, there's still no justice in her case, no accountability whatsoever, uh, and very little pressure from—or perhaps zero pressure from the the White House— Um, uh, Shedin was an American citizen, for accountability. So uh, what's happening right now is that a few months ago, uh, the FBI, independent of the White House, informed the Israeli government that they were opening a probe into uh, Shedin's investigation. The Israeli government uh, said openly that it would not cooperate with that investigation. Uh, There has been no public um, disclosure of where that investigation stands. uh, So we'll have to see what comes out of that. Uh, There's also the U.S. security coordinator, which is the liaison on the ground uh, in the occupied territories, um, said they were going to release or uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen announced that uh, they're releasing a new report um, uh, supposedly relatively soon. However, I don't think anyone is holding their breath about uh, what the findings are in this report, because uh, the State Department itself said uh, just last week that uh, there was no new findings or conclusions. And so, if we look at their original report back in July, uh, they said that um, Shadin was likely killed by an Israeli soldier, but that it wasn't intentional. They don't determine how they came to that conclusion. Um, and that conclusion also contradicts all the uh, video evidence and eyewitness testimony. And it's also confusing because apparently the security coordinator in this review met with um, forensic architecture and al haq uh two groups that together produced i would say the, the most comprehensive and detailed reconstruction of uh the killing and in it they show that uh Shadin and the group of journalists were repeatedly and deliberately targeted they show a very high level of accuracy by the Israeli sniper um and uh and uh you know despite that the security coordinators coming out the, with this report that very very closely mirrors the Israeli government's narrative uh, which is that it, uh, Shireen was uh, caught in crossfire, although there's no evidence to substantiate that claim.
6: Sharif, you said, uh, of course, that there's uh, been little or uh, likely no pressure from the White House uh, on this investigation, uh, the evidence of which was clear at the White House correspondence Dinner when Biden mentioned two other, rightly mentioned two other uh, American journalists, but did not mention Shireen at all.
3: That's right. Um, you know, uh, President Biden met actually with the with the parents of Evan Gershkovic, uh the Wall Street Journal reporter who is unjustly being uh, detained in Moscow on uh, Trump top charges. He met with them before the White House Correspondents Association dinner. I uh, paid tribute to them. Uh, President Biden declined to meet with Shedin's family, both when he visited uh, the region last summer and when the family has come to Washington, D.C., Uh, So, you know, Shadeen was an American citizen and her family deserves uh, the same call for justice, uh, the same push for accountability from the White House. And uh, and we also have to remember, you know, this is um, not—this is, you know— Holy! It's outrageous, but it's not surprising uh, coming from the from the Biden administration, which um, you know echoes decades of U.S. foreign policy, which is to back Israel and, and granted this impunity. And if we look at uh, also the Committee to Protect Journalists, just a couple of days ago, put out uh, a report uh, looking back over two decades. Uh, at the killings by the Israeli military of 20 uh, different journalists. And they document very clearly a pattern of impunity um, and kind of uh, very systemic similarities in Israel's response to each killing, including the most fundamental one that no one is ever held accountable for them. Uh, but they include, like, this standard playbook, which is uh, preemptive denials of responsibility, pushing false narratives, discounting uh, evidence in the case— and internal investigations that lack any kind of transparency and never lead to charges. This is exactly what happened in Chirin's case, and uh, it shows that this is a pattern of impunity. Um, And again, look, this is one of the most prominent journalists of her generation, uh, who was killed in broad daylight as she was wearing her press jacket and helmet with the words press clearly uh, visible on them, uh, with much of it caught on camera, with her colleagues there to witness it. Uh, With uh, the citizenship of a country that's the main backer uh, of the Israeli military. If we can't find justice for Shireen, what chance does anyone in Palestine have?
0: I want to go back to your documentary, The Killing of Shireen Abu Akla, when you spoke to Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland.
5: This is an American citizen. We have a duty to pursue the facts wherever they lead, as Secretary Blinken himself said.
3: Senator Chris Van Hollen has led a group of his colleagues in pushing the Biden administration to investigate Shidin's killing. Why do you think the State Department hasn't conducted
5: an independent investigation yet? Their new view, uh, not the original words of the Secretary, is that uh, they will take these other investigations that have been completed. Uh, the, the problem, the challenge is, uh, they've reached, reached very different uh, conclusions. Uh, you, you have... First of all, the, the IDF uh, report justifies uh, the shooting and the uh, shooting death uh, based on claims that there was a crossfire. But you also have um, independent analyses that have been done that clearly dispute that claim. Um, and the IDF has not put the facts on the table that show how it reached that conclusion. They've not made public uh, their analysis. This was a U.S. citizen. Um, do you believe the
3: administration has upheld their duty?
5: I do not. Uh, I think we have a duty to do what the Secretary of State originally said. They appear to have backed off, uh, but. I believe and many of my colleagues believe that we've got to get to the bottom of this and it cannot be swept under the rug.
0: So that's Maryland Senator uh, Chris Van Hollen, who also questioned the nominee for U.S. Ambassador to Jordan a few days ago about Jereen's case. Um, so. When President Biden went to Israel and the West Bank, um, uh, Tony Blinken and uh, the U.S. government told the family, because he didn't meet with them, that this investigation would be going on. Um, At this point, uh, you saw on World Press Freedom Day just a few days ago, Medea Benjamin um, did a— civil disobedience right at the feet of Tony Blinken, uh, demanding to know more about what's happening with Shireen, Ablo- Ab- with, um, with the investigation into Shireen's death. Your final comments, Sharif.
3: Well, I think we should go to the words of the family. Uh, they just released a statement, um, and part of it says, over the past year, our family has been forced to grieve while seeking justice and accountability for Israel's war crime. From the beginning, we've called on the U.S. government to act in the same way it would if any other American citizen were killed, was killed abroad. And they go on to say, We miss Shadin every moment of every day. We wake up every morning hoping that we'll finally wake up from this nightmare. We love you, Shadin."
0: Shriv abdel we want to thank you so much for being with us, correspondent on the new documentary The Killing of Shireen Abu Akhla, produced by Al Jazeera's documentary program Fault Lines. He just won a George Polk Award for foreign television reporting. Today is the first anniversary of the death of Shireen Abu Akla in the occupied West Bank. That does it for our show, Democracy Now! Produced with— my first Renee Augusta Messiah, Rosemary, Maria Taurus, Tammy Warner, Trina Nadour, Sam Alcock, Tamari, Astudio. I'm Amy Goodman with Yermeen Sheikh.